Good evening. Hope y'all are doing well. It's good to see you again. Well, let's get started. A man in New York City met and married a wife who had a cat. Really, the cat had her. She loved that cat. She would stroke its fur. She would comb it. It would hop up in her lap. She fed that cat the most expensive gourmet cat food you can imagine. She pampered that cat. The man detested the cat. He was allergic to cat fur, and he hated the smell of the litter box. And that cat scratched the furniture. His prized furniture. And he couldn't get a good night's sleep because the cat kept jumping on the bed. Well, one weekend when she was gone, the cat disappeared. When she came back, she was just torn up about her missing cat. So he says to her, honey, here's what we'll do. I'll put an ad in the newspaper and I'll offer a reward of $500 the return of your cat. A few days went by, they hadn't heard anything. So, he could tell his wife was still upset, and he came to her again, he said, honey, we'll up the ante. I'll put another ad in the newspaper, and we will offer a reward of $1,000. Well, a friend saw the ad in the newspaper, and he said, what? Are you nuts? No cat is worth a thousand bucks. And the man said, well, when you know what I know, you can afford to be generous. Obviously, the man knew how to look good to his wife. The man could put on a face and look good and be accepted. Likewise, in a future day, there is coming an individual who will be the consummate politician. He will be so charismatic, everyone will want to get on board. He will do amazing things and be lauded for his accomplishments. You might applaud and praise uh, and give him the, the, uh, the title of the man of the decade, except for one thing. His rise and existence will only last seven years. This man, of course, we expect is the Antichrist. Like the man in the opening story, he will have the ability to look good. He will speak of a time of peace and love. He will win the hearts of people everywhere. He will be seen as the man of diplomacy, able to win everything at a high-stakes game of negotiation. And when he gets the power he wants and believes he is invincible, he will show his true colors. He will reveal that he was a man of deceit, full of lies, willing to say anything in order to win. And the period of time he will dominate will be called the tribulation. Well, question, what is the tribulation? Here's the answer. 
a seven-year period where God deals with man's unbelief and rebellion. Where do we get this seven-year number? From a prediction given to Daniel about the future of his nation, Israel. It's an amazing piece of prophecy. Incredible in scope, if a little technical in the details. So we're going to look at that. Tonight we're going to focus on Daniel chapter 9, verses 4 through 27. Let's begin reading in 24. Seventy sevens are decreed for your people and your holy, holy city. And there are six things here. First, to finish transgression. Second, to put an end to sin. Third, to atone for wickedness. Fourth, to bring in everlasting righteousness. Fifth, to seal up vision and prophecy. And sixth, to anoint the most holy, probably talking about the end times temple in Ezekiel 40 through 48. So this is talking about the end times. Then verse 25, no one understand this, Daniel, from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler comes, there will be 70 sevens and 62 sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. Now verse 26. After the 62 sevens, the anointed one, Messiah, will be cut off and will have nothing. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end, and desolations have been decreed. And verse 27, he will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. Here's a little background. Let's go back in time six centuries before Christ was born. Daniel is a Jew, one of the most righteous men who ever lived. He was taken as a teen. Think of this, as a teen, God had picked him out for special purposes. He was taken as a teen to a land called Babylon. God was using Babylon to judge the generally wicked state of his people, the nation Israel. Daniel knew that God had promised to bring Israel back to her homeland after 70 years. Well, the tribulation is to last seven years, but it's not the only seven-year period which God revealed to Daniel. Why 70 sevens? Why not decades or centuries? Well, we deal in decades, don't we? We talk about this decade, the 90s, the aughts, so forth. But the Israelites used a different system generally. They dealt with units of seven 
you had six days, and what came on the seventh? Shabbat, Sabbath, that's right, a day of rest. And then the week started over again, right? And uh, you also had seven years, and on the first six years, they were to work and earn money. But on the seventh year, they were to trust God and do what he said, namely, let the land lie fallow. Don't work it. You can let you know, whatever comes up naturally grow up, and poor people are welcome to help themselves, but you take a year off. Now, let me ask you, how many people here would like to work hard for six years and then have a Sabbath rest? That sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> well, that's what God in his grace provided for his people. Well, they even had seven times seven because they'd have seven years and then each seven years after that, they would have this holiday, this year off until they reached the seventh unit of seven, 49 weeks, and they would take a year as a sabbatical there. <clears throat> it was called the year of Jubilee. So can you see that that Israel dealt in units of seven. So this should not surprise us that this prophecy is that way as well. But you know, even though um, God said, work six years and take the seventh year off, sometimes they didn't trust God enough. Ever been there? I think it's tempting for all of us. We worry about things, we worry about finances, worry about what might happen. And so some of them didn't listen to God and they worked that seventh year. Or maybe some of them were so money-hungry that they, they just couldn't stand the thought of not working, not producing, not making money. So got to have all that we can. So I'm going to work even though God said, don't. Well, God cared about his word. And he gave this as a gracious commandment, a commandment to help them. And they had rebelled against this too, as they did many other things. And so God, at some point, decided to judge them <clears throat> And to reclaim all those years that they didn't let the land lie fallow. And he sent Babylon in to take them away. And so one of the reasons Babylon came was because they had not been observing the seventh year Sabbath. And so God was going to get that even though they didn't want to give it to him. They would be in Babylon and a land in Israel would be given a rest. So my point is that God... Uh, is that God and Israel were on a timeline dealing with units of seven. Seven days, seven years, seven times seven, and then here, 70 times seven. So God pronounced judgment for their disobedience. Here's how the time for the punishment was figured. The punishment was to last 70 years. Since this was only one out of seven years, Israel's disobedience had gone on for how long? 490 years they had violated this principle. Well, 70 times 7 is 490, and that's 490 years that Israel had disobeyed her Lord. Anyway, Daniel must have been wondering if this is the time at the end of this period, could this be the time when God is going to restore the kingdom? Maybe even Messiah will come. Not sure what he was thinking, but I'm sure he wanted to know what was going to happen. God sends an angel named Gabriel 
to Daniel. <coughs> Obviously, Daniel is highly regarded by God. And the angel informs Daniel that there would be 70 sevens decreed for his nation and its capital, Jerusalem. There will be another 490 years. And God lays out his plan for his people. Well, let's look at Daniel's writings, the book of Daniel, in verse 24, and break it down. Seventy-sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city. Seventy-sevens. You may be asked, what's he describing? Is it 70 times seven days? Or is it weeks? Or is it years? Actually, it doesn't say right up front. But the context, (coughs) keep in mind the context. If you go back to Daniel 9 verse 1 and following, you see that Daniel um, is, he knows that the the punishment will last 70 years. And he's like right at the end of that 70 year period. And so he's dealing with years. That's the context. And so this is 490 years years that he's talking about. 70 times 7 is 490, so 490 years are the key to God's prediction. When would this begin? When does the clock start ticking? Verse 25, know and understand this, from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one the ruler comes, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. The event that kicks off this prophecy time clock is the issuing of a decree. So we might ask, what decree is this? The answer is the issuing of a decree by Artaxerxes in 444 B.C. You can find that in Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. This ruler, Artaxerxes Longimus, issued the decree. In the decree, he authorized Israel, who was back in the land, to rebuild the city, including the walls and a moat for protection. Some people have objected Jerusalem never had a moat. It's probably talking about the valleys surrounding Jerusalem, which in rainy seasons did collect water. And once back in land, they are to rebuild the city. um, And Israel was getting a degree of her sovereignty back. Anyway, this decree began the clock ticking. So, how long would this last? How long would that clock tick? For seven sevens and 62 sevens. That is seven times seven, or 49 years. During this time, the people were busy clearing the debris that had been left as Babylon came in, destroyed, just leveled the city of Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, threw all the stuff into the, the valleys. And it was a really major cleanup project for them. So it would last about 49 years for that part. And then um, <coughs> for 62 sevens, or 434 years, on the screen, you can see how this adds up. Seven times seven is 
49. How about this for you math whizzes? 62 times 7. Right, you're just reading off. I know you. <laughs> well, you add these together and you get 483. You're good. All right. <laughs> well, at this point, something incredible happens. Something that would happen that would make your jaw drop. Read the next verse on the screen with me. After the 62 sevens, the anointed one will be cut off and will have nothing. Something would happen to Israel's king, the Messiah, for that is what anointed one means. Messiah would be cut off. Think of it. God predicted when Christ would be cut off, would be killed, for that is what cut off means. And it says he would have nothing. This probably means he would not be ruling. He would not have anything that Messiah was entitled to have. I mean, he should be entitled as Messiah, as ruler, to have authority and to live and to reign in Jerusalem and be able to issue orders and guide his country. But he can't do any of that. He has been cut off. God again reveals that his servant Messiah would die for the sins of the people. He would be killed. God gives us a way of timing of that event and how it would be worked out. It would be 483 years after the decree of Artaxerxes. Remember 444 BC. The year that Christ died was 33 AD. Now, you do the numbers, the years, and it's real close, that 490 number, 490 years, but it's off by little, by about five years. What happened? Did God make a mistake? No. Sir Robert Anderson, a police detective, worked out the solution. He said that instead of calculating on our current system, you know, Julian calendar, 365 days each year, you should calculate by using the ancient Jewish calendar, which had 360 days. Now, granted, occasionally, in order to keep it in sync with the rotation of the sun and keep it right, occasionally they would add an extra month, and the Jews would keep their uh, calendar in line with the solar calendar. But this prophetic calendar does not do that. It's a 360-day calendar. So here is some support for that 360-day calendar. Um, these things are all found in Revelation and Daniel. But 1,260 days, that exact number of days, is exactly the same as 42 months, which is exactly the same as three and a half years. But the only way that it works out mathematically right is if you have exactly... 360 days. If you don't do that, that doesn't line up. But this is very clear. The 1260 days we see in Revelation 12, chapter 12 and chapter 11, the 42 months, which is the same period of time, is in Revelation 11 and chapter 13. And the three and a half years we see 
For example, in Daniel 7.25 and other places, time and times and half a time. So time and times, three years, half a time, a half year. So three and a half years. All these line up perfectly if you use a 360-day calendar. It's right on the money. A prof of mine, Dr. Harold Honer, went to Cambridge and did his PhD dissertation in Cambridge. As he did this, he wrote his dissertation and he entitled it Chronological Aspects of the Life of Christ. It's a published book. You can, you can order it. I had one for many years and I loaned it out and I didn't get it back, so I can't give it to you. But if you like, you can go online and see it. It's a wonderful job. In fact, Cambridge, this elite institution of higher learning, only selects one dissertation for its broad publication per year. Well, guess whose publication they chose to publish? Dr. Honer's. Cambridge valued his research. So let's, uh, let's look at this, and it's amazing again that Daniel's prophecy predicts the exact day when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, thus fulfilling Zechariah 9.9. So here are Daniel's 69 weeks. Honer calculated the number of days in the prophecy and came up with 173,880 days. Then he calculated the exact date for the beginning of this prophecy, March 4th, 444 BC. By the way, another faculty member that I have very high esteem for, Dr. Craig Glickman. Um, he has gone over postdoctoral studies where Dr. Honer did that as beyond PhD studies in Tübingen, Germany. And he's, he's very familiar with Dr. Honer's work. And I heard him say that he viewed Dr. Honer as one of the top four or five um, uh, historians of the Bible. I mean, this guy is really sharp. And so <clears throat> he's calculating this based on this... Uh, this number of days, starting in 444 B.C. Now, this gives one more support for the 360-day calendar. It's so accurate that it has the fingerprint of God on it. Only God could do something this accurate. Imagine that number of days bringing it right up to the week of the crucifixion. Remember, Daniel's prophecy brings this up to a certain date, and it says, after that, Christ will be crucified. And just a number of days after this is fulfilled, that happens. We're talking about Messiah being killed. We might stop here for a moment and say, why? Why was Messiah killed? Well, friends, God loves us. He loves us all. But we've all done wrong. Scripture says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And I'm a pastor, but I stand here before you and say, I'm one of those. I'm a sinner. Now, I'm a forgiven sinner, and I try to sin less, but I'm still a sinner, and I need God's grace. And one of the things we all need God's grace for is forgiveness. Our sin separates us from God. And if we were to die in a condition apart from God, 
we would be separated from him for eternity. But he doesn't want that. And so he sent Christ to fulfill this prophecy and to take all of our sin upon himself and pay the just penalty for that sin, which is death. Having paid that, now God is free to extend forgiveness to all. And anybody who believes in Christ receives him as their personal savior from sin, receives God's forgiveness, and can have an opportunity to walk with him each and every day. And then someday, either when we die or when the rapture takes place, we get to enjoy his presence forever. If you haven't done that, or if you're watching online and you haven't done that, I encourage you right this moment to accept Christ as your Savior. He died for you. He rose again. He offers forgiveness. Believe in him. Well, Daniel also gave a hint of what would happen after Messiah was cut off. Next, we read, The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The people of the ruler who will come and destroy the city and the sanctuary. Who is this? Well, let's work through it. First, where was the Jewish sanctuary? Jerusalem, yeah. What happened to the city? When the Babylonians came, it was destroyed. Well, who was it destroyed by? Um, later, when they, uh, uh, after Christ, the Romans who had control of Israel at that time were the ones who destroyed Jerusalem in 70 A.D., it was destroyed by Titus, the emperor's son, who invaded Israel due to many rebellions on the part of it, the Jews. But before he could take Jerusalem, something happened. His father, the emperor, died. And so he had to leave this attack, had to leave his army, and go to Rome, where he was crowned as Caesar. And his army pressed forward on the attack and took the city of Jerusalem. From God's viewpoint, it was judgment on his people for not accepting his son, Jesus. Well, how many here have been to Paris? Anybody? Okay. Paris is a wonderful place. If you go there, one of the prime things that you will be uh, invited to see is the Arc de Triomphe on the Champs-Élysées, on this uh, wonderful roadway. And um, tourists flock to it. But what you may not know is that this arch is formed or patterned after another arch. It is patterned after the arch in Rome. The one in Paris is patterned after the one in Rome. And this arch, this arc, is a celebration of Titus's victory over Jerusalem, of his soldiers taking Jerusalem. The Jews can be identified in this picture as the people who are carrying the menorah or the Jewish candelabra. Now, the Romans had a tradition. When they conquered their enemies, there would be a parade. The general rode in front on a white horse, the sign of victory. Then came the chariots, 
with prisoners walking behind in chains. This is that. Rome celebrated victory over Israel, but it was because of their rejection of Messiah, and both Daniel and Jesus prophesied this event, this taking of Jerusalem. I want you to remember we are now talking about the prince of Rome as we look at the final prediction in this chapter, which tells us how long the tribulation will last? Seven years. Seventy-sevens are predicted. Following this fulfillment of sixty-nine-sevens, or 483 years, there's one seven-year period left to fulfill for the nation Israel. You can see this on the screen. You've got the 490 years predicted. When we come to the cross, 483 years are completed so far. But that leaves seven years. This is where we get the number seven, the seven-year tribulation. This is that. In a sermon in Matthew 24, Jesus predicted times for Israel that would be unparalleled. They would be times of intense persecution. So the name for this period is called the tribulation. Now, let's read verse 27. He, and remember we're talking about the prince of Rome, he will confirm a covenant with many. I take that to be Israel's leaders. And that covenant will be for one seven, a seven-year period. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. On the wing of the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. He will confirm a covenant. He will sign a contract. Here, this future prince, who is part of the reformed Roman Empire, this prince will sign a contract with God's people, who at this point are still walking in unbelief. And so he will promise them what they want, what they don't have, even now. Safety, security. It may be possible that this contract gives them permission to rebuild their temple because we know that it's talked about, and so it has to happen. Anyway, they trust him, they enter into a contract with him, thinking that he is going to guarantee them safety. So the two of them make this contract or covenant are the last Roman dictator, called in Revelation the Beast, and the people of Israel. By the way, why is the church not in the tribulation? There's no reason for the church to be in the tribulation. The tribulation is for the Antichrist and his fight against Israel. We have no part in that. And God has taken us out before that, I believe. Now, I know many of my close friends, I have many friends with different views on this, so I don't separate fellowship over this. But uh, I believe that we are raptured out prior to the beginning of the tribulation. And we're taken to heaven, as we see in John chapter 14, verses 1 to 3. 
All right. Here is Daniel's 77s. This is an overview of Daniel's prophecy. You see, the beginning with Artaxerxes' decree for Jerusalem, 69 sevens, bringing us to the triumphal entry, and a few days later, Messiah is cut off. Christ was crucified. Then, <clears throat> as there is a, you see there is a gap between Daniel's account of the 69 sevens and the last seven. So history shows us that there was a gap, and you can see that in the text of Daniel. There are words that separate these periods of time. God said basically to Israel, time out. I'm not going to be working with you for a while. And he's now working through the church. But someday he will say to Israel, time in, and it will begin this seven-year period. The agreement between this Roman beast, or Antichrist, and Israel is the last seven years. But halfway through this period, in the middle of these seven years, he will show his true colors. He will reveal his real character. He is not a man of peace at all. But rather, he put an end to sacrifice and offerings. Israel was brought in thinking they had security and could worship God in their old way, and he puts an end to it. By this time, Israel has rebuilt the temple, perhaps because the beast prompted her, or promised her protection. Israel feels safe and boldly rebuilds the temple, and the Orthodox Jews begin to make sacrifices. At the midpoint of the seven years, Antichrist, or the beast, breaks his promise of peace for Israel. He enters the land and sets up an abomination right in the temple. This may be the idol described in Revelation. By the way, if you want to understand the book of Daniel, look to the book of Revelation. If you want to understand the book of Revelation, read Daniel. They fit together hand and glove. We'll talk more about the tribulation when we deal with Revelation 7, uh, 6 through 19. This is a prophetic passage that deals with events, the tribulation, called the seals, trumpets, and the bowls. Today, we looked at the rule of the prince of the people who destroyed Jerusalem, the beast or the Antichrist. I want us to give an application and then we're going to cut the broadcast, and I want to put you guys to work, and I want to give you various passages that go through and tell about this individual. And I'd like for each table, each group, to form your opinions based on that passage, and then we'll share your results after that. So here's the application. Only God could predict these hundreds of years in advance. Could you or I predict what, who will be ruling or what he will be doing, what some future ruler would do 700 years from now? What he would do and then what he would cease doing three and a half years later. Only God can do that. And you can see this verified in the fact that the dates line up perfectly to bring us right to the cross from 444 B.C., the exact number of days. Like I said, this has the fingerprints of God on it.
Now, if God is this sovereign about history and about providing us salvation, can he be sovereign in your life and my life? Is he strong enough, big enough, and bold enough to take care of our problems and help us to work through them? Yes, he is. So praise God. Let's, let's go to him in prayer. Father God, we thank you for this marvelous prediction. Father, it's just incredible, the scope of this prophecy. And Father, truly, this forms the backbone of biblical prophecy. Uh, this is the prophecy that so many others hinge on. And so, Father, we thank you for letting us know this, letting us see it, and how it worked out. And Father, we acknowledge that you provided salvation through Christ. And we thank you for him. We thank you for Christ's coming, that he agreed before the foundation of the world to be the sacrifice for our sins. We thank you we can depend on him and trust in him. We thank you for your forgiveness. Amen.